Welcome back to another Cardinals Off Day podcast. The St. Louis Cardinals are 51 and 51 on pace to win 30 more games and also lose 30 more games. Uh, ben, how you doing? Uh, I, I'm doing all right, except for uh, the pitching staff getting shelled in Cleveland today. Um, just an absolute bombardment by the Guardians. They, they took offense to the attempted invasion uh, last night by the Cardinals and pushed them back to the, to the city's edge. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of the city's edge, I think Fran Mil Reyes hit that ball to, to, and perhaps beyond the city's edge. D- did you see the, uh, the interview that he gave post game where he said after he hits a home run, he likes to look at the iPad to watch video of it so he can see his teammates reactions to his home run. <laughs> and I, I was thinking about what his teammates reactions must have been to that moonshot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mine was, uh, awe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was jaw dropped. Oh my goodness. Did that leave the whole ballpark? Yeah. Uh, um, because you know, there've been a lot of fun home runs and powerful hitters in, in Jacobs field and whatever they call it now. Um, and I don't recall seeing one quite that far ever before. I don't think I've seen one that left the stadium and it, you know, there were, you know, it kind of bounced out. And so, you know, that's a little, but yeah, I, I have never seen one, but you know, not that I watch a whole lot of uh, Cleveland games uh, on the reg, but uh, we're, uh, so we're only two days from our last, uh, podcast, but uh, Ben, what did you learn in the last couple of days? Um, I learned that the Cardinals are going to be the Cardinals, um, both in terms of the season and on the field, and then the front office in terms of you know roster construction. And I, I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of excitement uh, here in the next week with them. Yeah, I do have the uh, MLB trade rumors, a ticker uh, for the Cardinals running here in case anything breaks. At least I think it's running. There's, it's just completely blank. I don't know. Maybe um, no way to tell if it's working or not. But uh, myself, I learned, you know, we talked about Harrison Bader in some detail on the last episode and just the tremendous change in his profile uh, as a hitter this season um, and specifically uh, attributed most likely to the surgery he had to remove the nasal polyps that were causing his eyes to water. And uh, I just, you know, over the last couple of games just continued to kind of marvel at what he's been doing. And I was, uh, so I think what I've learned is that, you know, I for had really kind of thought Harrison Bader is a player who has probably a high floor because of his great defense and speed, but a, a, frankly, a pretty low ceiling, too. And so he was a guy who I had long wondered, you know, is he going to stay as a kind of starting center fielder for a long time just because, you know, that is that ceiling really high enough that you you want him in there as your first option? And I, the Harrison Bader that we're seeing right now, honestly, has the ceiling of an MVP. And I'm now that's his absolute ceiling. I don't. I think it's unlikely that he gets there. But you know, I uh, he's he's currently <laughs> he's got a 141 WRC plus right now. And you think about putting up a 141 WRC plus while you're playing like absolutely elite center field defense 
um, you know, and of course a tremendous base runner too. So I did a calculation. Now the the whole WAR per one sixty two thing is always like you know, because obviously if you take a short period of time, you multiply it out over a season, it's going to look big. But the whole point is you don't do that over 162 games. So I realized that, but, but, you know, he's looking, taking his numbers for this season, he's played about a third of a, of a season this year, you know, cause he missed some time. So basically over one third of a season, if he, if he put that up over that full 162, he would be an 8.1 war player. So, um, again, it's we're, we're we're looking at a little bit of a small sample size here, etc. But it's he's been sustaining what he's doing. There's a pretty clear kind of physical reason for it. So um, again, I'm not saying that that's who he who he is now, and he will guarantee that. But I've definitely revised my ceiling for Harrison Bader up considerably. You know, when you look at eight win elite defensive center fielders, you know Jim Edmonds. Uh, immediately comes to mind, and I've I've heard he's been texting with Harrison Bader this year. So maybe oh, he? maybe he's provided some insight and rubbed off a little yeah. bit. <laughs> um, I I always wondered uh, how much Bader's profile would be similar to uh, Peter Borges, where he's yep. an elite defender, but the 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 tension between offensive production and fielding skill and production um, can sometimes get a little fraught, especially when the rest of the lineup doesn't hit. And I know uh, Matheny is no longer the manager. He's an idiot and he's not very good at managing. Um, But you wondered how long uh, the Cardinals front office and Mike Schilt would have stayed with him, especially given how much swing and miss uh, there was in his game. And if, if you would have told me he would have had uh, basically cut his strikeout rate in half over one third of a season, uh, I would have been incredulous. I wouldn't have believed it. And so to see him doing that and not only doing it, but also hitting for power, it's really impressive. And yeah. Uh, it does make you wonder, he, you know, he's doing it in a way where you look at it and you see it, that it's sustainable. Whereas Tyler O'Neill, you know, he's still kind of in the who the heck knows what's going to happen with this guy uh, realm yeah. for O'Neill's profile. But yeah. with Bader, you know, it, it looks sustainable and and very heartening moving forward. Yeah, I agree. I'll throw another comp out at you. Bader has always reminded me of, do you remember Drew Stubbs? He played for the Reds for several years yes. and then kind of bounced around after that. And Drew Stubbs was a super fast kind of elite defensive center fielder who also had really a lot of raw power, but just tons of swing and miss and just a hitting pro kind of a mess of a hitting profile that he can never put together enough. And, and honestly, I had sort of, that's who I really had seen Bader probably kind of being was a, you know, a Drew Stubbs type, but I'll, uh, I'll definitely hope that he can keep going with uh, with something like a Jim Edmonds comp. <laughs> That's a good thing to even be able to throw out there for sure. Um, so we did want to touch real quick. We had a, uh, a, a listener question. Um, this is uh, JB Alvey, who um, uh, I believe he, I think this was an email that he replied to us. And he, uh, I guess there was a comment on Viva Albertos that brought this up, but he wondered about the, someone suggested the idea of could the Cardinals trade KK to the Padres in exchange for Chris Paddock, who the Padres have apparently become disenchanted with. Um, 
And uh, JB notes he doesn't think this is realistic um, because it would be too fun, which, frankly, that's a really good benchmark for a trade, whether or not a trade is realistic. If it sounds super fun, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> um, but uh, but he says it's certainly interesting. Um, uh, I did some looking at the, at, at the players specifically, but Ben, did you have anything just kind of generally on that you wanted to say? Um, I, it seems to me that uh, the Cardinals and Kim – are a good match. Uh, and, and the reason that I say that is, uh, you know, Kim gives up quite a few fly balls today in Cleveland that did not turn out very well for him. <laughs> right. And, uh, folks who have listened to our podcast throughout the season, uh, may recall earlier in the year when I was asking you how worried you were about Kim, because it's not hard to imagine, him giving up harder contact than some of those balls flying out of the park and that ERA going up. Um, And that happened today in a very small scale way. Um, But uh, he is a good fit for the Cardinals because they play in Bush Stadium now with a humidor, uh, which is a very good pitcher park. And then they also have superb outfield defense. And uh, to me, and also, I think Kim is not going to be terribly expensive. He wasn't terribly expensive to sign in the first place uh, coming over to MLB uh, from Korea. I don't think he'll necessarily be as expensive as your typical major league free agent to bring back to the Cardinals on a you know maybe another two-year deal. And so I would be surprised if the Cardinals were to send him out and um, even if it's a fun trade like one for a for a Chris Paddock, I just he he's one of the few sh- reliable pitchers in the rotation right now, and um, and I think his recipe works best in a ballpark like Bush Stadium and it, playing in uh, with a defense behind him like the Cardinals. Yeah, I I would agree with everything you said. Um, the the other things that I think the 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 one for one major leaguer for major leaguer trades are are pretty rare these days. Although we just had one, um, I think today, um, but uh, they're pretty rare. Even more rare when it's you know position same position for same position. So you know a starting pitcher for a starting pitcher. Um, you know a challenge trade as they call it in fantasy baseball, right? And uh, so you know that's pretty rare um, for a number of reasons. But you know one of them is. If you're a team like the Padres, who's uh, presumably looking to upgrade, um, how much of an upgrade is that really? And Paddock's had a bit of a down season, although I, you know, I brought their uh, pages up, and uh, KK's got a, a FIP of three point five nine, and Paddock's is three point seven one. Now Paddock's results have been worse, and there's other things, you know, like he. I mean, KK has been better, but. You know, it's it's close enough that I kind of look at it and I think, well, why would they do that? You know, that's yeah. a pretty nominal upgrade. So it seems a little unlikely, um, you know, for that reason. But, uh, you know, it would be fun. And I could see where – and Paddock's a young he's, – he's a young guy. He's only 25, but he does have a few years of experience. And if he's kind of floundering there a little bit, he could maybe be kind of a change of scenery type guy. So, um, so anyway uh, – the kind of trade that would be interesting, and frankly, I think it would be more fun if we saw more <laughs> more trades like this. But um, uh, you know, and Paddock seems like a guy that um, I mean, it almost seems like he seems like a classic kind of uh, 
uh, uh, uh, oh gosh, who was Tony LaRusso's pitching coach? Why I just blank on his name? Dave, Dave Duncan, Duncan, right? Yep. Wow. Wow. Lost that. He seems like kind of a little young, but still fits into that mold of a classic kind of Dave Duncan reclamation <laughs> type project. But, uh, but he's not around anymore. So anyway, um, I I, so, I would also add the other dynamic that we as fans don't appreciate, you know, and you called it a fantasy challenge trade and, yeah. and, and, you know, I don't have anything against fantasy baseball at all. Uh, but as it's become more popular, you get more of these types of fan proposals where it's like, you know, we'll trade these two pitchers and it, and it doesn't take into account, you know, the, the infamous human ele- element where, Right. The Padres are winning. They have a good clubhouse situation going. You know, KK has an interpreter. He's with the Cardinals. He seems to be well-liked. You know, they, they seem to get along well. And, you know, I think you have to KK, take... That. KK seems to me like the kind of guy that could get along with anybody. Oh, like, I, I agree. But KK could, could show up at the motorcycle bar in Pee Wee's Big Adventure like Pee Wee, and he would be... Uh, you know, dancing on the bar in 30 seconds, just like Pee Wee. Oh, and that very well could be. But, uh, you know, I just feel like when you're looking at shaking up the clubhouse by making some changes, uh, you know, it's a little bit easier to justify when you're bringing in a clear upgrade as opposed to kind of a, you know, a a tenth or two-tenths of a FIP upgrade. And... Um, right. The only person who's doing this is Jerry DePoto, who's like <laughs> trading relievers and acquiring relievers. And everybody's about the same kind of, you know, like like the overall uh, shape of the team doesn't change any. He just moves some names around. And I, I think he gets off on it, frankly. That's the only way that I can understand. Yeah. And so uh, I feel like that's why you don't see a lot of one for one major leaguer trades anymore, in particular amongst teams. Uh, who are contending because there is that team chemistry element. And unless you're getting a clear upgrade, you know, you don't want to upset that apple cart if things are going well for you. And right. And and that's the other good point here is, you know, in a trade like that, the Cardinals are, are even though it's a one for one, even though you're still getting a major league uh, rotation guy, the Cardinals are really kind of the sellers in that situation. And if they're going to sell, you know, KK, who, who could probably be one of the more valuable pieces were they to trade him this year. You know, do you do that for, uh, you know, granted, still young 25 year old guy, but who's entering his Arb years. And if, you know, if he's kind of, uh, you know, had a bit of a dip in quality, he's a guy that, uh, you know, are you even going to keep him through those Arb years starts to be a little bit of a question as opposed to, you know, would the, if the Cardinals were going to sell KK, would they rather be getting somebody with a little bit more of a, prospect pedigree um and i think they i think they probably would so um in terms of uh what the cardinals uh might do or just what they're thinking is in general um we wanted to kind of go through some of uh, mo's comments that he made uh uh last night uh on valley sports uh with the cat he did an interview on there and there were a few comments on there that we thought were particularly uh, interesting um Ben, I don't know. Did you co- coin the term "mo speak" over at Viva Alberto's? Uh, I think I, I think I used it from the comments, but I turned it into a subject and a recurring uh, okay. series of posts analyzing the "mo speak." So, okay. So it, to hell with whoever coined the term in the comments. 
Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, but, but I think I probably wrote more parsing things that come out of John Mosellock's mouth than, uh, a lot of folks, uh, have, uh, over the years. And he's really skilled at saying something without saying much at all. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and I have to say Jim Hayes did a really great, and Jim Hayes, I think just really does a, a great job pretty much all the time, but, um, he did a great job in this interview too. He does that thing he does where he's just, he's very self-deprecating and kind of like, um, you know, very soft, but yet actually kind of digs out some, some fairly useful nuggets from, as you said, a man who, you know, does not want to give out any nuggets at all. So he's kind of got like almost a Letterman esque quality where he, he almost takes them, makes them off guard with his self deprecation and humor and, but doesn't let go of an issue and will follow up and kind of, uh, endearingly gets them to maybe give more information than they wanted to. And, and that is definitely enjoyable. Absolutely. You know what? The other thing Jim Hayes does that uh, not everyone of his colleagues does, he listens, which I enjoy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And that's maybe that's why I get the, the late night talk show host vibe from him because, uh, active listening is a skill when you're on television interviewing someone and, uh, not a lot of people have it. And and nothing against uh, any of the the print reporters, but they don't have that uh, setup with the screen, and they also uh, don't seem to have developed that skill of actively listening for the camera, and then uh, also uh, following up in a way that's that's entertaining and interesting. Yeah. So, so Jim Hayes, so one of his earliest questions he threw at Mo was he, he kind of said, you know, couch, of course, and I know you're not going to say any names, da, 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 da. But what, when your teams are talking to you, what is it that you're looking for or what do they think that you're looking for? And Mo said, well, we're looking for innings, anything we can upgrade to take us deeper into a game. So that I thought was pretty straightforward, Ben. And that suggests to me, uh, starting pitching is something that they're looking for. What, anything else you read into that? Um, yeah. I, I mean, to me, they obviously need innings. I, right now they have a four man rotation with Oviedo in AAA and Woodford as the fourth starter. And, um, you know, Jake Woodford is not a major league starter and Oviedo yeah. is probably not yet either. And you feel fortunate if they get through five and, and the bullpen has been problematic. Uh, It's been a little bit better lately, but if you can get your starter going into the sixth or seventh inning, instead of into maybe the fifth, if you're lucky, fingers crossed the sixth, you know, that takes a lot of stress off the bullpen and it kind of helps you solve uh, or perhaps partly solve two problems at once, which is, the rotation and the bullpen, because if your rotation is yep. throwing more innings, you're able to be a little bit more selective in how you're using relievers. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing that's interesting too, is it kind of suggests a, you're potentially looking at an acquisition that's, that's not like a, we're, we're going for it, you know, or anything like that. You know, I don't think he's talking about Max Scherzer when he says he's looking for innings, but you're, you're just looking at somebody that could potentially, 
um, help you maybe keep it a little bit more competitive and, um, you know, just keep it from turning into a disaster during, you know, for the rest of this season. Um, yeah. Um, uh, a Mike leak type of starter, right? Yeah. And they might still be paying Mike leak too. So, um, didn't he opt could... out this year? I, when he opted out, I, he, he saved DeWitt some money, didn't he? I think you're right. I think you're right about that. So, um, so anyway, so that was fairly straightforward. Uh, another thing that uh, Mo added shortly after this. So he, so you know, there he's kind of saying, "Hey, we're looking for starting pitching, right?" Then he he kind of pivoted and said, "If you look at our everyday club, there's not a lot of places you could insert someone and say that's a better move." And that was something that really jumped out at me. And, and Ben, this is something we had kind of talked about talking about today, anyway, which was basically the the roster inflexibility on this um, team. And I don't think that's just, I personally don't think that's something that we're just seeing this year. I feel like that's been around for a while. And and I'll, I'll just say, like, I, I bristle at that comment a little bit just because I think, you know, if you're a 500 team that's like 25th in the league in offense, um, to say that, boy, I don't see anywhere in our roster we can upgrade, I just think is kind of on its face a little a little bit ridiculous. Well, there, there are two levels to that, right? Like one is the Cardinals roster. Then the other is what's available in the market and what sure. are the prices that you have to pay for what's available in the trade market. And, you know, we, we were talking about the innings and, and how – they need that in the rotation. You know, that is obviously a very easy area to upgrade, right? Like they've gotten probably sub replacement level pitching from starters. And so uh, even though there's, there's a pitching shortage, not only in major league baseball, but the high minors this year due to injuries, um, you know, the ability to upgrade, I mean, LeBlanc was an upgrade, right? Like it's, (laughs) <laughs> you know the, the it, it is not hard to improve upon uh, the starting pitching that the Cardinals have gotten with Flaherty and Michaelis uh, on the injured list, and so that is an easy area to upgrade. It's also a pricey area to upgrade because everyone needs pitching. Um, but then when you look at the roster, and and this is something where. You know, health, I think, has played a a role in this as well. When you look at the position players on the roster, I mean, I remember when uh, reading uh, and listening also on the radio uh, about a month ago, six weeks ago, people speculating that the Cardinals would trade for Joey Gallo, uh, who the Yankees acquired today. Because Mm -hmm. their right field production had been so bad. And it had been bad. Right? It, right, it had been terrible. Justin Williams uh, was not ready for prime time. Uh, the Cardinals were wrong about that. I was wrong about that. Um, you know, after seeing him in AAA two years ago, I thought he would be a, a decent fourth outfielder. Well, and, he's, he's got he, you know he he's got the tools. Yeah, um, and and there was just hope that he's um, you know he's put it together enough to yeah. you know do, do what he needs to with them and he, he has them. but whether it was the the lost 2020 season in the minors or what have you you know he he was unable to uh, come up to the majors and be productive and and so if you're looking at that 
from that angle, I can see as a national reporter how you would think that. But if you're looking at it as a Cardinals fan, you know that Dylan Carlson was playing center field and he was earmarked for right field before Harrison Bader got hurt. And Harrison Bader missed a lot of time. And now Bader has come back and he looks like a potential MVP candidate if things were going differently. Tyler O'Neill looking like a potential all-star in the future with his current production and Carlson looking like a solid everyday major leaguer. And so when right. you, when you look at that outfield in terms of a primary or a regular outfielder, it's probably going to be difficult unless you're getting a Gallo type um, to upgrade an outfield position. If you're the Cardinals um, and then you go around the infield, they aren't going to upgrade over Goldschmidt. They aren't going to upgrade over Arenado. Yachty is playing hurt. They could upgrade over him, but that would never happen. Um, especially mid-season with how important catchers are to pitching staffs and strategies. So that takes right. you... See, see as, it's, as soon as you start getting into the that would never happen, that's when you're starting to get into this is the Cardinals way of doing things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't. And, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, yeah, Yachty is there. I'm not, yeah. so I'm not arguing like Yachty specifically, but I think they're, I think they're too, you know, I, I think they're just too soon to get to these kind of things. And frankly, they don't build, they don't build in depth is the other thing that they don't do. And so that's, that's one of the biggest reasons. I mean, again, we have the curse of Colton Wong this year. What sunk this team this yes. year was two things. The biggest one was not signing Colton Wong because if you sign Colton Wong, then you put Tommy Edmond into that super sub role where yes. he's fine. He's actually probably even a good candidate yes. to have in that kind of multi-position role. But but they you know they don't they don't do that because they say you know what we can save a li- we can save some money and put Edmond in and he'll be fine. And we have the yes and we have these three outfielders we have. Uh, O'Neill and we have Bader and we have Carlson and it's like okay yeah you do but behind them you have garbage yeah you have just absolute garbage and so I you know I look at just in the last couple of days um, the uh, Adam Frazier to the Padres and then just today Eduardo Escobar going to Milwaukee and the story on both of those trades you read is the initial question is like well like where are they going to play because they they don't they're not obviously coming in and slotting into an open position but then those those clubs are smart enough and flexible enough to say like these guys have some multi-position versatility. We're going to use them in a couple of different spots. We're going to get some guys some rest. And frankly, you just know that somebody's going to get hurt and you're going to, you know, you're going to end up needing them there anyway. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where, you know, to me that that's where the roster and flexibility just really starts to stand out. And it's saying, well, we're locked into all these, you know. Yeah. Oh, totally. And and what I was going to say is is right in line with what you were saying is, well, then you get to the middle infield. Edmund is the weakest yeah. link. As you said, not signing, not bringing Colton Wong back is is the biggest mistake the team made. But you will never convince me that that was not in order to comply with ownership's payroll edict. It was the oh, way yeah. to make oh, that, that happen. I'm not, I'm not singling and, him because you're right. He is doing that, but I mean. Um, but you're right. If you have Wong, you can use Edmund to complement him as a right-handed hitter. You can use Edmund or Sosa to spell DeYoung and Arenado. They need a proven uh, quality left-handed bat um, 
frankly, uh, on the infield and in the outfield uh, to yeah. complement uh, Bader and O'Neill and get get them days off. And that's something that I think Schilt, it, it feels like it's pulling teeth for Schilt to get regular players rest. Uh, and I just don't understand it. It's something that Tony LaRusso yeah. always did and, and still does and does well. Yeah. And it's also something that teams like the Dodgers seem to have as a fundamental part of their roster construction that we don't, yeah, but I we don't say, want you to I, play 150 games. We want to get right. you time off, you know? Right, but but I think it's it's also because those teams are are built that way. Those are they're built, uh, you know, the, the all twenty five men on that roster are are designed to have some kind of a role, and um, and I agree that Schilt does not get rest enough, and so I, I I completely agree with you on that. But you know, this season, you know, I look at that bench, and you've got you've got washed Matt Carpenter, you've got Edmondo Sosa, you've got Jose Rondon. I mean, those you know that you there's not those aren't players that you need to find playing time for. I mean, those are, those are warm bodies, you know? Uh. Yeah. I mean, Carpenter should start every game against a right-handed starter over Edmund, in my opinion. Right. But that's, that's, that's a reflection on how bad Edmund is. Well, yes, it is. You know, the the, the fact that Mac, the fact that this version of Matt Carpenter on this team should be starting, that's further indictment of that roster inflexibility and just the lack of depth there. You know, both of those guys, I mean, the, the, the second bait, the primary second baseman and the kind of top pinch hitter off the roll off the bench. Those are both areas that could clearly be. Well, and Rondon and Sosa, what's the difference between them? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, like at the plate, what's the difference between them and what's right. their, no, absolutely. they're completely redundant. And, um, and I'm not anti Sosa again, he is fine as a bench infielder. It, if you're going to use him, the problem is that he's a right-handed batter and you have a shortstop in DeYoung who yeah. is a right-handed batter who you need to start against every lefty. And you have a second baseman in Edmund who is a, a good right-handed hitter and needs to start every game against the lefty. And so then, yeah. and then you have Arenado and Goldschmidt. Guess what? They're pretty good right-handed hitters too. Yeah. And it, Ed- Edmondo Sosa should be the worst player on your bench. Yes. And he's probably the best player on this bench. Yes, absolutely right. And, and that, that depth is non-existent and it's non-existent because they let Colton Wong walk because ownership told them they had to cut payroll and, um, and they had to let Colton Wong walk because they extended an extra year to sign Dexter Fowler, which was a horrible mistake. Um, it, and even though they didn't even have their managers buy in and I like Dexter Fowler, but you look at that dysfunction at a management level and also the, the, the poor assessment of talent. Well, the car- and I would say that the the Carpenter extension at the beginning of a season that he just completely tanked and was already in his mid thirties. That was the probably the worst decision that they made. But but and this is a whole other thing we could talk about in the off season. But to me, that's that's indicative of another thing that they do, which is they're terrified of the open market. They just believe that they're going to anyone who reaches the open market they're going to lose, and so. Uh, well, they you know, are. They, I, I mean, they have shown, you know, they call it their puke point. Uh, Gersh so eloquently put it. And their their puke point is not at a level that allows them to win on the open market. 
Well, but what should what should make them puke is doing these early extensions for guys and and you know the uh, overpaying um, because Carpenter and and Goldschmidt too you know Goldschmidt and Goldschmidt's still a very a good player and I'm very glad Goldschmidt's on the team but they signed Goldschmidt to an extension before he came here and had the worst season of his career and so they signed him as if he was at an early extension as if he was. Arizona's Paul Goldschmidt, had they let him play out that season, uh, they still could have re-signed him off the open market and it would have been, you know, much cheaper. But I don't, anyway, that's its whole other topic. Oh, absolutely. But it's, they, they painted themselves into a payroll corner. COVID-19 hit. And if they have 3 million fans in 2020, at Bush Stadium watching the Cardinals play baseball, Colton Wong is probably starting second base right now. That's the other reality is, and it's the reality for every team, but it's a it's a harsher reality for the Cardinals because they are, and it's well-documented, more reliant on fans showing up at the ballpark. And and, I, and I, so- I mean, I, and I, I acknowledge, and that's, I, I think that's definitely possible. I, uh, you know- we have no idea what the financial realities are. You know, it's, it's all kind of pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Yes. So it's one of those things where I can't, I can't say no, that's not the case. Cause I have no idea, but I do. Some of those arguments seem a little convenient for ownership. Too, oh, sometimes. they totally do. But what I am saying is regardless of what financial reality is of one Cardinal way ballpark village, the corporations that those (laughs) are, uh, are controlling those Um, ownership, whether justified or not put the edict down on payroll. And my point is that they would not have done that in my opinion and forced cutting Colton Wong if they had 3 million people coming through the turnstiles buying, uh, you know, tickets to the Cardinals museum and, uh, you know, doing everything else. The Boston Red Sox owner would not have sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees had he not invested in a Broadway play that tanked either. So I'm just saying this this is why we're, this is why we're now in the, the curse of Colton Wong here and they need to change something or, you know, the Cardinals go a hundred years without winning a world series. But, but the thing that kills me about this more than anything, Ben, is it's cheaper to get platoon people who are good at defense. Like that is a market inefficiency. And it's amazing to me that this team that spends just enough, but doesn't ever quite go overboard. They, they have not, recognize that embraced it and built their team around it with positional flexibility and then to leverage people into kind of a Frankenstein at different positions so that you can get upper echelon production from a position, even if it's from two or three players and how they have not done that yet is beyond me. A hundred percent. And I, I'm going to, in our little outline here, I'm just going to flip flop real quick. Cause we're kind of getting into something we are going to jump into a little bit later, which is, you know, we, I think we know who the Cardinals are, but you know, who do we want them to be? Cause this plays right into, I often look at the Rays and I see aspects of what the Rays do that would make so much sense for the Cardinals. And I think 
in the the universe of you know back in kind of Howard Megdahl's you know Cardinals way and the really you know ahead of the curve Cardinals seems like things they would do that they don't do and and what you just said is 100 percent at the top of the list it's like if you're gonna say we're a we're a mid market team we've got some budget inefficiencies uh, you know or budget restrictions I mean etc why they don't look for those kind of platoons is 100% right. And we talked about like, yeah, this year they should be utilizing the, you know, frankly, the garbage Edmund Carpenter platoon makes a lot of sense. But there's, you know, there's better ways to do that. And that's why Eduardo Escobar was a guy who you had identified, and David Peralta as well, and your kind of, you know, suggested trade options, you know, those are guys who could, you know, who could come in and, you know, be used in in a sort of platoon role like that. It makes so much sense in places where they have these things, but they, I, I mean, when was the last time, I don't know if I can think of a time when the Cardinals like had like a, just a realistic kind of platoon situation that wasn't something that they just kind of got backed into. Instead, it's like, you know, we've always kind of got to, we've got to find our guy, you know, and, uh, you know, I mean, and, and you know, now Harrison Bader's, I'll be honest, a counter example, because it, until this season, I would have said Harrison Bader was exactly that guy. He was a guy who was, who, who became their guy and became their center fielder, you know, and, and was there for several years, but performing at a level where I felt like you can't do better, like, or you can't look for a platoon or, you know what I mean? Now he's of course had this sudden kind of, um, you know, surgically induced, you know, blossoming like the $6 million man. But, um, but yeah, but anyway, that, that's one thing about like, I look at the Rays and I think about that same thing with, you know, the Rays flexibility to, um, you know, use like the opener or use like piggyback starters or something. I mean, look at the challenges that the Cardinals have had this season getting, you know, starting pitchers and in innings. Did they ever try anything, you know, creative like that? No. And, and you know, and I'm not saying they had great options to do that like either, but it just feels like there's there's just not that kind of creativity there. So anyway, those are the things I wish they would take from the Rays. The fact that the Rays um, trade all of their players away <laughs> would be terrible. And that, you know, that I wouldn't like. So, um, you know, that's one of those things. It's like there's things that frustrate me about the Cardinals and I wish they change. But I have to acknowledge that there's a lot of things I, I really do appreciate about the Cardinals and the fact that they'll bring back a, a Adam Wainwright and a Yadier Molina. And I can really, you know, enjoy watching a full career career of players like that is is amazing so yeah yeah you don't go full raise is what i'm saying yeah and you know it it seems to me that that one of the and we touched on this but one of the issues with their inflexibility is their staff Schilt just does not strike me as being imaginative in any way he has his little george kissel gospel from the 19 70s or whatever and that's what we're going to use and so you know we have to put the speedy slap hitter lead off even when his on base percentage is 305 and we aren't going to platoon and we're not going to use an opener and we're not going to piggyback we're not going to do anything that might help the team win because that's not how baseball has been done and right. that's that might be unfair to Mike Schilt but you know you also look at a Mike Maddox who is also a traditionalist and yeah While there have been hints in the media like, oh, they might try this or this. And it seems like it's the Cardinals pretending like they're open to solutions and then just doing the same thing over and over Mm -hmm. again, even though they don't have the horses to run that race. And it's it's been very frustrating because usually, you know, uh, inventiveness 
is born out of necessity. And it's hard to imagine being creative uh, in a season for the Cardinals being more necessary for the team than it was this year. And I feel like they really failed that test. Um, Even though they've gone out, they, they have augmented the organization's pitching in a lot of creative ways. The front office has, you know, in terms of Mm -hmm. signings and that type of thing. Um, But when it comes to in-game player usage, there has Mm -hmm. been rigidity when they needed flexibility. And it's part of the reason that they're eight and a half games back today. And it's a failure. And the organization needs to look at itself and, and ask itself some tough questions about why that happened. Because I, for the life of me, don't understand how it did. I mean, all of so many of these barriers have been at least softened, if not entirely broken down over the last five years. How is it that the Cardinals can't get buy-in from their manager and pitching coach and players to try this type of thing? It makes no sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, the other, who, who would we like to see them be more like is, you know, the Dodgers. Now the Dodgers to me are the gold standard of baseball organizations and you can't do everything that the Dodgers can do. The Dodgers finances are well beyond the Cardinals, but the Dodgers do exactly what we talked about as well. Look at the way the Dodgers used Kike Hernandez over the last several years, the way that they've used Chris Taylor, you know, they bring these guys in and they understand uh you know they, they understand their roles and they uh and you know they put them in roles where they could be successful i mean frankly they brought albert pujols in because they recognized that they had a, a weakness against left-handed pitching this season and it it worked out that it made sense for him to get a lot of time at first base then and muncie to either sit against those left-handed pitchers or to play a little bit of second base against them um, you know, even though he's not a great second baseman that, I mean, that's the kind of, you know, creative thinking and that's your, that's a juggernaut franchise with huge, um, you know, financial resources, but they're still, you know, making smart decisions like that. The, the other thing, frankly, that I, and again, I, the Dodgers, of course, I'm, I'm picking the very best team here, but to me, one area that the Cardinals are just absolutely missing out is in those guys who they develop or guys who, not that they develop, but got, you know, who, I, I've asked this before. Who has come to the Cardinals and gotten better right in the last five plus years? And you look at the Dodgers, and yeah, you can say, well, sure, they you know they go out and you know some of these uh, you know Mookie bets or you know that you know they can sign some just gigantic you know contracts, <laughs> um, etc. But but to me, the thing that's just really made them so good is uh, Max Muncy, Justin Turner, Chris Taylor. Right, these are guys who who were more or less cast offs when they came there and they identified some strengths and, and either put them in roles where they could uh, execute what they could do. I think through coaching helped them, you know, do that. But I mean, you know, they've, they've grown those guys into, you know, tremendous assets. I mean, those are, those are all-star players now. I mean, those are, you know, top, top tier players. And I, for the life of me, couldn't tell you the last time the, the Cardinals pulled something like that. Are you saying the Dodgers have stolen the Cardinals devil magic? I think they have. I think they have. No, no, you're absolutely right. Who, who was the last player who came to the Cardinals 
and was better with the Cardinals than he was before he got there. I, I just thought of it. Ryan Ludwig. That's who it was. <laughs> I was going to say Ludwig, what was it, like 2009. I was going to say was. Hazel Baker, um, but that yeah. was only for a couple of months. So, <laughs> um, but no, I mean, you look at it. Dexter Fowler was not better. Uh, Mike Leak yep. was not better. You know, their, yeah. their, their mid tier free agents have been busts. And yeah. I mean, Paul, Gold, Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado are still great players. I'm really glad they're on the team, but they haven't, they're not better. No, but they were also entering their decline phase. I mean, yeah. what yeah, we're yeah. also talking about here is for whatever reason, they haven't identified players with skill sets that they can leverage and put in a yeah. position to succeed. And, yeah. um, and, that's clear across the board uh, with a lot of these acquisitions. And it, it's also, I think, reflected of them overreaching for some of these mid-tier free agents, like a, yeah. like a Mike Leak or a Dexter Fowler. And Well, and, and as I'm thinking back, you know, who honestly feels like one of the last times that maybe they tried something like this was Peter Borges, because Peter Borges was a guy who was like, this guy's got a, a real plus defensive skill set and certain kind of offensive things he can do. Um, we've got John Jay, but John Jay is not a great defender. He's not that like there was there was a path forward where Borges could have been a really complimentary piece in that Cardinals outfield. And, and granted, Borges just I mean, his performance just dropped off and he it's not like he went on somewhere else and, and was was good. He So, you know, he just could have been cooked, you know, and it just you know, the little turkey thermometer came up while he was in St. Louis or whatever. But but it, it never felt like he had uh, a chance there. And it felt like they wrestled with that all year because who's what's the role here? You know, it was like impossible to figure out which, you know, which one should start. The, and it was. A, yeah, the uh, the other one that comes to mind now is is frankly, Tyler O'Neill. Um, you know, they saw the power. They saw the the other skills. They traded Marco Gonzalez, who was kind of the odd man out on the depth chart of the rotation, brought O'Neill in, not to the major league club, but into the organization. And even though he didn't immediately step into the majors and hit, you know, uh, that's probably the biggest success right now. But it's only been what? three months worth of a success, you know, total when you take injuries into an account. So it's probably premature to even call that a success, but I was just thinking, you know, that probably merits a a check in the Cardinals favor at this point in time, even if they had to, you know, get rid of Randy or (laughs) Rosarena to clear space for him. Uh, We'll see how Liberator does, uh, but he's he yeah. was so early in his development. You know, I I feel like giving them credit for O'Neill, who was ready for AAA, is, is a little bit more fair of a of of credit to give. But yeah. but when you look at the majors, you know those major league guys, it's uh you know there's not a lot of uh, identifying of talent and bringing folks in and helping them get better. Uh, which is something that seems to be what the cutting edge clubs are able to do nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, over the last 20 years in, in my mind, anyway, the two books that have really kind of 
identified major major trends of what go on in baseball. The first one, you know, 20 years ago, of course, is Moneyball, right? And Moneyball was all about identifying these market inefficiencies and, you know, et cetera. And, and, and I think that explained so much of the success of, you know, say, you know, the first decade of the 2000s, basically, was how fast did major league organizations essentially adopt the kind of thinking that was, um, you know, profiled and Moneyball. The second one, which people don't talk about as much, but uh, the uh, the MVP machine, yes, um, uh, uh, by uh, Ben Lindbergh, um, right? The MVP machine really covers more in the last most recent decade, um, just the way that teams have uh, you know developed players and really looked at you know player development and of course brought in the technology and all these kind of things, but just really you know, zeroed in and, and improved the players that they already have or figured out, you know, where they can kind of, you know, grow those players. And, you know, I see the the Cardinals have, have, as having really executed that sort of money ball um, evolution of the game very, very well. I see very little evidence of them doing anything that when you read the MVP and that MVP machine came out probably three or four years ago, and it's talking about things that had already been happening, you know, a few years behind that. I, I think they're pretty woefully behind in in that kind of, of development. Um, and hopefully they're catching up. And and you know, I'm sure. And there's there's certainly plenty of counterexamples. And yeah, I'm not. It's not like I'm in their minor league, you know, system to really understand what they're doing. But we're just we don't see a lot of evidence. No, of, but they're uh, they're revamping their hitting approach organization wide, Ben. That's true. That's true. They brought in a brought in a, a young buck uh, with some new, fresh new ideas. So and they were um, they were looking to use uh, some of the new techniques uh, at the major league level with pitching, and then they hired Maddox. So yeah. you know that's working out real well. We got a lot of yeah. guys throwing strikes and oh my gosh. Um, oh. Oh, gosh. Anyway, anyway, well, maybe we should sort of set that aside. The, the one other kind of comment from Mo that we didn't touch on yet, and, and I thought this was pretty interesting as well. Um, he said um, there was a, a sort of a short view versus a long view in terms of looking at what they might pursue during this uh, trade deadline here. He said, if there's a way to position our organization to keep from going to a different market this offseason, that would interest us, too. And Ben, the way I read that is we know we need to acquire a middle infielder this offseason. But if this midseason market's going to be flooded with middle infielders, maybe we would actually make that move now or a starting pitcher. Yeah. I think the same yeah. could be different. Yeah. I, I but think that's how right. I read that. Is that how you yeah. kind of took that? I mean, the, the thing that they prioritize more than anything else with the wallet ball and you know, they, they fired Jockety because he liked expensive veterans. They wanted to draft and develop players so that they would have young, cost-controlled players for seven years. And so um, control is a high priority for the Cardinals. And what that is, is it's a euphemism uh, for players who are under contract for, you know, two, three years or club control. So you can get a free agent that's on a team friendly or excuse me, a player who would otherwise be free agency eligible, who's on a team friendly deal and you have control for three years 
because that's how much is left on his guaranteed contract. Then the other form that control takes is, you know, if you're pre-arbitration level, the team just controls you and you make the league minimum or however much more than the league minimum the team is willing to pay you. Uh, and then you become arbitration eligible and your, your salary as a player is suppressed through arbitration to save owners money. And so that's the wallet ball. Bill DeWitt's DeWallet is thicker if he has more players under club control on the major league roster than players who would otherwise be free agency eligible. And so uh, the Cardinals would rather acquire someone who is quality and is under their control for two or three years then sign someone on the free agent market for five or six. And that, that, that is smart. That's kind of a part of the uh, advanced metric revolution because it's common knowledge now that when you sign those free agency eligible players, they are usually older. They are usually in or entering their decline phase. And the last two, three years of, of those contracts are typically accepted as being uh, too costly for the production they're going to give you. And so there are good baseball reasons for that. Um, But it seems to me that they would much rather get a starting pitcher who's got, say, two or three years of control left than go sign one. And I don't blame them because when it comes to pitching, I'd rather be on the hook for two or three years instead of five or six um, yeah. because pitchers get hurt well, and you're going to be paying someone to be on the injured list in all likelihood. Well, and, to, and to me, it also spoke to the, just what it, and it seems like j- just from what's been publicly reported that just really in the last few days, a whole lot more players have suddenly been available, like a number yes. of clubs. Have, and, and of course, I think probably the most famous or most notable one is, you know, by all reports, the, uh, nationals just basically saying, Hey, guess what? Everybody's available now. Like we're, <laughs> we're like, we give up, you can have anybody. So I think about like, so again, um, I think starting pitching could be where they're going. I think they know they need to upgrade in that middle infield this off season. Well, uh, most of what we sort of knew was going to be available middle infield wise were rent were rentals, you know? So like uh, a Trevor story example, which they don't really have interest in. Well, if the Nationals are gonna are potentially gonna move, say, a Trey Turner, who does have one more year of arbitration, um, now that's not a huge advantage because that last year of arbitration, you're basically getting a kind of market value anyway. So, but even so, I could see where that's maybe the kind of player that they would say, "Well, look, we know we need to get a, a guy this off season, and he's maybe, and I don't, I don't, I have no reason to think that he's specifically is somebody they're looking for, but that type of player, and and with more of those guys coming out there." I could see them thinking, geez, some of these guys are guys we thought we maybe would be trading for in December, but if they're going to be on the market now, maybe we just need to make that happen a little bit earlier. So, And that, and that would fit the profile of like a Jason Hayward or a Paul Goldschmidt, where yeah. they, they trade for that player for the last year of control in the hopes of then signing him to a longer deal. Um, oh, yeah. and, and or, Trey or Turner Matt holiday yeah. or, uh, Jim Edmonds, or, I mean, like McGuire. McGuire. I mean, it, it just like, that's been their move like forever. And, uh, going back to the jockey days. Um, but yeah. yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying where, uh, you know, these players who were potentially trade targets during the hot stove are now available 
So we're going to see if we can add them now regardless. So it's positioning them for 2021 and 2022. And that's yeah. also one of their go-to moves is they, uh, you know, they don't sacrifice the future, but they position themselves with a solid core for uh, the middle term while also keeping flexibility for the prospects that will be coming up. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, that could be something. And it would be interesting if they were to acquire someone like a Turner, do they then just move DeYoung to second base and put Edmund in that super utility role? I mean, what are what is the ripple effect? Uh, or is DeYoung or Edmund going back to the Nationals in, a, in something like that? And so it will be interesting to see if they use an opportunity like that, similar to the way they use the lackey trade to make some changes with their major league roster to move out some more established players who are perhaps underperforming a little bit. And that will be interesting. I'll be surprised if they do anything um, that major, uh, but he seems to hint that they're at least exploring it with that comment. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Was there something with shortstops you wanted to touch on there or? I wanted to give you a, a, a quick quiz, Ben. Oh, um, all right. I'm and, up for it. And we didn't rehearse this. Uh, ben is completely cold turkey. Um, but uh, let's say, uh, let's start right here. Uh, just for kind of an overall backdrop for this conversation. Uh, we're focusing on shortstop. Uh, just off the top of your head, uh, what do you think the shortstop slash line is for Major League Baseball as a whole this year? Oh, my gosh, the slash line. Well, that's a little bit tough because, like, batting averages just continue to drop to this, like, insane level that I almost can't even. Okay, I'm going to say 238. Oh, very specific. 298. Um, I don't know. I'm not real good at slugging. What's a really middling slugging percentage? Like 350, something like that? I don't know. How is that? Well, it may have been correct if, if Fernando Tatis Jr. weren't playing this year. Yeah. Um, but uh, a rising Tatis uh, raises all boats. And the, <laughs> uh, the MLB average this year uh, for shortstops is a 250 batting average. Wow. A, a 315 on base percentage, a 400 slugging, that works out to a 311 weighted on base average or a 95 weighted runs created plus, which is which is much better than the historical production for shortstops at the plate, right? I, yeah, I, I immediately wonder how that compares because that seems like that can't be – I guess I still historically think, you know, your you know, shortstop is probably going to be your lowest end, you know uh, – overall offensive profile, which is why I kind of threw them where they were. I almost feel like that's got to be better than some of the other positions. Oh, it's, it's one of the better ones. Um, you know, I should have looked at it before the podcast, but earlier in the year, I just like to look at that to help give me context for how Cardinals players are performing. And earlier in the year, uh, first base was one of the worst offensive positions and, and shortstop was one of the better ones. Um, my my next question is: Would you rather have player A or player B? Okay, mm-hmm. and player A is hitting for a two forty average, three eleven on base percentage, 
422 slug, which works out to um, a 315 weighted on base average uh, and an 82 weighted runs created plus. Okay. Mm-hmm. And player B has a, and I'm looking at this on my phone because my computer freezes when I don't use it, has a 205 batting average, 299 on base percentage, a 402 slugging percentage, 308 weighted on base average, which works out to a 94 weighted runs created plus. Uh, which player would you rather have? Oh, man. Um you know, I'll be honest. I I was I was thinking player A all the way through, but I and um I was surprised, especially with that two ninety nine on base, that player B had that much higher WRC plus. So I I I put a lot of faith in WRC plus as being a good kind of overall measure. So for that, I I would say that had you not told me that, had you just told me the slash lines, I would have said player A. But with that knowledge, I'm I'm going to say player B. Well, player B is Paul DeYoung, and player A is Trevor Story. Uh, and so DeYoung is being rewarded in weighted runs created plus with the park adjustment for Bush Stadium, which is a good hitter, or excuse me, a good pitcher's park. And Story's yeah. being punished for playing his home games in Coors, which is a great hitter's park. M- most interesting to me is they both have 1.4 fan graphs war uh, so far this year. And so... Yeah. You know, story has been very good. Uh, I read an article uh, earlier this week uh, about story, and there was a general manager saying his his throwing has gone downhill big time, and that was backed up by the Statcast data uh, that it had fallen by I think like eight miles per hour from a couple seasons ago. I think it dropped from eighty four to seventy six, and so I really wonder about his health. And that was before he got. Uh, hit by the pitch up in the hand area uh, yeah, last night. Last night. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I just like that because you had, there were some rumblings on Cardinals Twitter, which I realize uh, God bless Cardinals Twitter, but it's less than 1% of the population. Uh, and I started looking around at, at Trevor story. And my brother uh, lives in Denver, goes to a lot of Rockies games as a story fan, not as much as Arenado. Uh, but is a story fan. And I started looking at everything and uh, with DeYoung's very good July, he has shot uh, up to around story levels of production. And Mm -hmm. with their apparent relative health, it seems to me that DeYoung would be a better bet moving forward. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, And and I, I do, I do feel like, uh, and I'm a big Paul DeYoung fan. I feel like Paul DeYoung um, is so much more valuable. <laughs> He's a much better player than he gives you the impression of, and that's for a variety of reasons. You know, one reason is um, he doesn't really have a, a body that screams athleticism at you. So he doesn't just, you know, like look the part necessarily. Um, but, you know, his defensive numbers are insane. He, you know, he doesn't make a lot of spectacular looking plays, but, uh, he, he never misses a ball basically. I mean, he makes every play and it, you know, it really adds up. I always think about, um, I'm always interested to look at his defensive numbers compared to, you know, Javi Baez who, you know, and Baez makes some uh, like otherworldly fantastic 
no one else on the planet could make that plays and and also can just you know spray hot garbage all over the infield and you know lose a game himself periodically which paul DeYoung never ever does so it's really kind of a tortoise in the hare situation comparing the two of them but um and similarly at the plate you know DeYoung, you know he's got you know, he's got power, absolutely, but he doesn't, he's never a guy who's going to hit for a real high average. Um, and so you, you can watch long stretches of Paul DeYoung at the plate where it just looks like nothing's really, nothing's really happening there. So, um, the- so no, I'm okay, Paul DeYoung. That said, I, I, I also, I do feel like, again, just talking about the roster inflexibility earlier, I still think that is a position that they could potentially look at doing something with, you know, even if it just meant, um, possibly moving DeYoung to second base, depending on who you know who you brought in to to upgrade there. So, what what do you think about DeYoung? Um, well, I I want to suss that out a little bit more. Okay? okay, take a guess. What is Paul DeYoung's batting average on balls in play this year? Well, because he started off so poorly, I'm gonna guess that it's low. So I'm gonna say two seventy, two nineteen. Oh my god. Like it's it's so low that it's it's just it's completely unsustainably low. Like he's right. been uh just ridiculously uh you know yeah. I, people are going to get upset with me, but he's been ridiculously unlucky this year. And yeah, and it I'm showed sure. by that. And that's why you know when you see him having this very good July, mhm it doesn't always work out where you your luck the pendulum swings all the way to like right. red hot white hot production right like right. sometimes you have that like 200 batting average on balls in play and then you just swing back to like 290 and then you're stuck mm-hmm. and he still is yeah. stuck way down in in the low air area in yeah. terms of of where he is and so when you look at that you think Oh, has he been unlucky? So um, I want you to guess uh, what the range of his expected weighted on base average is from his rookie year, 2017 through this year, 2021. What do you think the range is? So give me the high and the low for the his five years in the league. Okay. I'm going to say... Always above 300 because he's a good, he's been a good hitter. So I'm going to say between 310 and 330. Oh, that's very good. It's, it's actually uh, 315 and 327. But this oh, is wow. the crazy thing to me 2017, his expected weight on base average is 327. 2018, it's 327. 2019 it's 323 then last year it was 315 this year it's 327 again oh and my gosh. and i thought that was uh, uh pretty wild um and then yeah. you also have the expected weighted base uh average uh x wobicon as they say and and that has gone down but it's still uh from his rookie year, it was 435, but it's still 380 this year. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you if you follow uh, Tom Tango, that is a a better indicator of future 
performance than your yeah. past weighted on base average. Yeah. But his his lowest expected weighted on base average was last year and it was 315, which means you know his contact was not that great. Um, but then when you look at his season last year, you know, he was still right up, you know, I, I think his, uh, batting average on balls in play was like, you know, around league average. So he wasn't terribly unlucky on balls in play. So if you, right. if you look at those stats, it yeah. makes his batting average on balls in play seem very firmly in the unlucky category yeah. for a batting average on balls. Well, in play. And on, on top of that last year, they played like. 14 games they were all in empty stadiums and everyone had COVID all season yes. so and <laughs> you know even with lane thomas i was willing to give him a mulligan and then he showed up at the ballpark and you know was terrible yeah. so i'm not quite yeah. sure what happened with him he apparently has like a COVID hangover but you're right like and it it was you know a a partial season, which means it's even more volatile. And so, but you, you, you look at his overall profile, it makes that, that look like he could very well bounce back and be up in that kind of upper one third of short stops uh, over the, the remainder of the season. Well, you know, what's so interesting to me about that too, even just, so going beyond the, you know, the ex Woba and just, uh, just going by uh, the eye test. Uh, Paul DeYoung, every Paul DeYoung at bat looks like every other Paul DeYoung at bat. I don't think I've ever seen him like, oh, he's his his swing has gotten off or like suddenly he's chasing or he's doing this. Right. And and I, I to me, I, I've always looked at him as because he was not uh, he did not have much of a prospect pedigree. You know, he was a guy who uh, I think really anyone ever thought like maybe kind of a utility infielder type guy, like basically current Edmondo Sosa, I think was at least that was my expectation as he was coming up was maybe that was kind of like a best case scenario for him, you know, and then he turns into this guy. And and to me, it's always just looked like he just so understands like who he is and what his game is. So he takes that same, you know, he he's got that swing that is going to generate that fly ball to like the exact same spot in straightaway left field and will go over the fence a significant amount of the time. Yeah. And he's, he's always going to do that. And I think his defense looks the same way. And that's why his defense is just so, again, it's not spectacular. It's not like pushing the upper limits of range, but it is just like absolutely consistent all the time. So uh, that's very interesting. It's interesting to see that that consistency that I feel like I can just see watching him would lead to the statistics that are that same year to year. He looked, uh, his swing was still his swing, but he did look out of sync. You know, they rushed him back from the injured list and I didn't really understand why they did that. And then Mm -hmm. when he got back, I really, really didn't understand why they did that because he did not right. look major league game ready. Right. Um, but as he's gotten back into the groove, like you've seen mm-hmm. him become Paul DeYoung again, and he's kind of turned into Super Saiyan Paul DeYoung <laughs> over the last few weeks. Um, and so that has been very heartening and good to see. Uh, but I also just want to make sure you know, we've all seen his hot July, but his his poor start, that first impression to the 2021 season, uh, was fueled by a bit of bad luck uh, as much as anything. And it seems yeah. like the pendulum is swinging back the other way. 
and and hopefully he continues to have a good run for the rest of the year. Um, and I think De Young's overall profile kind of supports uh, Mosellock's assessment. You know, if he's including shortstop in his in his analysis that it's tough to upgrade and really it yeah. is it's like trey turner is an upgrade well, at shortstop that, that, and that's why i mentioned trey yeah. turner because i think that's the level you have to get to to really and, be upgrading and that's like top five in baseball shortstops yes. like that yeah. is it's not tatis but it's the group of guys beneath yes. tatis which are yeah. like crawford and turner um you know. i know a lot of people are excited about andrelton simmons but andrelton simmons Current day Anderson Simmons is not an upgrade over over Paul DeYoung. Now, if you could bring someone like that in, and and then DeYoung and then DeYoung moves to second base, and you sit Edmund or something, there's still things like that that could potentially make sense. But yeah, and so I just wanted to do that for a little bit of perspective on Paul DeYoung, who we're talking about when we talk about Paul DeYoung, the player right now uh, on the cusp of the trade deadline. He's going to be yeah. a tough player to upgrade over. And I think he's a pretty good bet to be a, a top 10 shortstop in baseball over the remainder of the season. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, no, that was really, that was impressive. And I'm a Paul DeYoung fan. And I think overall that was what my general assessment of him would have been, but I'm still kind of surprised at some of those, some of those numbers. So, all right. So did I, did I earn a passing grade there? How did I? Yes. Oh, out? you did. a. I think you did a really good job. I would have never gotten the range for his weighted on base average that, that close. Yeah, that I definitely that was definitely my strongest performance there. But uh, uh, <laughs> all right, well, I feel good. I feel good. I wasn't totally totally off on anything. So, well, we've uh, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation today, but we have gone a little bit long, so we should probably uh, move towards wrapping things up. So, uh, Ben, what are you going to be looking for? We're, and by the way, we're going into a stretch here for all of August. The Cardinals are off every single month, every single Monday. So we're going to start to seem like one of those like regular podcasts that always, uh, you know, publishes at the same time. So uh, you should be expecting to hear us uh, pretty much every Monday going forward. So, Ben, what are you uh, looking for just in these next few days before next Monday? Um, You know, I'm I'm looking to see how the bullpen pitches, uh, because I think that's going to be the probably one of the cheaper areas to upgrade. And if Mosellock can get a reliever who doesn't walk people and is under control next year to augment it, uh, if he feels he needs to do that. Um, I don't know if the bullpen's performance, you know, over the next few days will, will be indicative of what he'll do. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to be watching the bullpen uh, cause they are going with that four man rotation uh, they've got the days off. Uh, I'm interested is to see uh, how the bullpen performs here in the next uh, few days, and if they can help the Cardinals, uh, you know, seal some victories. Nice, nice. I am going to be uh, kind of taking a little bit of a cue from that comment from John Moseliak about potentially um, looking for uh, long term, some long term upgrade possibilities. Um, and I'm going to be looking at the middle infielder market because I feel like that's um, that's the spot where I think the most clear upgrade for this team will come most likely in the off season. But I suppose if they're open to it, it, it could it could be something that comes now. But even if it doesn't come at this trade deadline, I think seeing 
who's available and what kind of guys are going for there might give us some indication of what the, you know, what the team's going to do, you know, next year. And there's a few options, you know, um, uh, you know, I guess, you know, Nolan Gorman is a second baseman now, so maybe something like that happens, but I, I just, I don't really see any way that they roll into next season without adding, uh, you know, a- adding a player in that, you know, middle infielder role, or at the very least that could be kind of a, you know, some middle infield, some outfield kind of, kind of thing. So I'm going to be looking for those type of guys and just kind of see where they're going, how much they're going for. Um, Ben, do you have uh, an off day recommendation for us? I do. Uh, This morning, Jason Stark at the athletic uh, published a good piece. Um, I really enjoy Jason Stark. I always have going back to his ESPN days and baseball tonight. Um, and I think he writes interesting pieces like this because he has a lot of connections and and he gets some good, albeit often anonymous quotes. Uh, but he has an article out today, MLB execs explain life on the buy, sell, trade deadline type rope. It's the toughest spot to be in. And he's got some uh, on the record quotes from Dave Dombrowski about this, the, the current Phillies uh, president of baseball operations. And, um, you know, the whole thing is just an interesting window into how uh, baseball front offices assess their team when they are not a clear buyer or a clear seller. Um, or put otherwise, the position the Cardinals currently find themselves in. <laughs> and uh, I found it pretty funny that the frame of the article is basically all of almost all of the NL East teams feel that they can buy because the NL East is so mediocre and everyone is pretty close to one another. And so, uh, you know, if you're wondering why the Braves went out and made the trades they did, it's because they're in the NL East and the Mets have injuries and they're less than five games up on the Phillies and five or less games up on the Phillies and the Braves. Um, but there's a lot more to the, to the piece than that. And it's a good read. Uh, you know, I think there is a subscription deal on the athletic right now. Um, and, uh, I recommend it. I, I think there's a lot of good writing on it. Um, and you should take advantage of that subscription opportunity if you haven't already. If you have an athletic subscription, I recommend uh, reading that piece by Stark because it's a good piece and it's an interesting insight into how front offices are looking at their teams at this point in the year. Nice. Yeah, and I, I very much recommend an athletic subscription as well. I think it's I think it's well worth the cost. So my off-day recommendation, I'm going in a slightly different direction. Um, I recommend that uh, folks make themselves a BLT because I'm telling you what, we're, we're getting into like peak tomato season here. And for my money, there is no better way to enjoy a truly delicious tomato than on a BLT. So uh, I also think a BL- there's no wrong way to make a BLT, you know, like it's just a really perfect sandwich. And so, um, but I'm uh, my own, just, just a few small suggestions for what I find makes a really good BLT. Uh, so you, I, I think you should go with a, a pretty basic white bread. Don't get too fancy with your bread, maybe like a brioche or something, but you want that kind of like soft white bread, toast that up. Uh, you know, good quality bacon. You don't need to get anything super, you know, fancy or certainly I wouldn't get into something that had a lot of like added flavor or anything to it. Uh, tomatoes are the biggest thing. You got to get great tomatoes. If you've got some in your yard, that's the best. 
If you're in a CSA, that's great. Farmer's market, farm stand, you know, go that route. Don't, don't buy grocery store, hothouse tomatoes. You're not going to get the, get the impact here. Um, lettuce, of course, the L and the BLT. Uh, the only time I ever shred lettuce is for BLTs. I think mm-hmm. that if you dice the lettuce up, you get it a nice shred, you get a nice, you can make a nice even layer of crunch throughout. And that's really all you're getting from the lettuce. And I, I'm just using iceberg lettuce on here and it's only there for crunch. Now, what I do add for flavor that I would strongly recommend is fresh basil. We put Put some fresh basil leaves, again, from your garden if you've got it on there. It just brings out all that flavor in the tomato as well. And then, of course, good quality mayonnaise. So, um, oh, the other thing I forgot to mention, those tomatoes, slice them up and then sprinkle just a little bit of salt on them and let them sit for just a minute before you put them on the sandwich. The one other trick I would mention, uh, fry your bacon up in a pan. And then uh, if, if you're up for it, and I'm always up for it, um, actually, f- uh, rather than toast your bread, fry your bread in a little bit of that bacon oil you have there in the pan. So you'll get a nice, like quick, uh, crust on that bread and you'll actually kind of soak in a little bit of that bacon flavor as well. That's, uh, that's pretty decadent. So anyway, that's my recommendation. The best thing to pair with a BLT is fresh sweet corn, which you can also get, you know, at a good farm stand now, at least, at least we can, Ben, that's truly, I think the greatest thing about living where we live is the, the sweet corn this time of year is just, uh, unbelievable. (laughs) Yes. And my, uh, my father-in-law grows some on his farm. Uh, we, he lost it all last year, uh, with the drought. Um, but this year it's, it's coming in and I think we should be getting some here relatively shortly, fresh off the farm. So I'm pretty excited about that. Awesome. And if you end up with more than you can use, feel free to drop some off at my house. I will take it. Oh, we definitely will. (laughs) All right. Well, Hey, thank you everybody for sticking with us for another Cardinals off day. I guess we'll all kind of ride out the rest of this trip to the uh, trade deadline here. And uh, Ben and I will be back next Monday to kind of talk about where things land after that. So we will see you then.